Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's get to your questions about COVID-19 and the dreaded Delta variant. Let's get those in front of our regular expert, Dr. Chris Smith in the UK. Evening, Chris. Good morning. Thanks so much for being with us here. Evening for you, morning for us. Uh, hey, last time you were on, Chris, by the way, I think you were speaking about vaccine intervals, the Pfizer vaccine that we've got here in New Zealand. And uh, I think since then, uh, the official advice has been changing for people that uh, the best interval is uh, six weeks, not three. So that was uh, something you were ahead of the curve on uh, here on Saturday morning. Yeah, just don't ask me about sport because I, I will not be ahead of the curve on that. But yeah, um, viruses, <laughs> I, I know my onions there. Indeed, indeed. And in fact, on that, uh, just a couple of days ago, I heard you talking to another radio station. And look, that that's fine. You are allowed to talk to other radio stations. Just don't be too upset if we start calling other virologists. You know, that's how it works. But you did say there that, um, look, the Delta strain isn't more deadly. The severity of cases people are presenting with isn't greater. It's uh, what it does do is spread a lot faster. That's the basic message people need to get about Delta. Yeah, and we've seen this, haven't we, sort of incrementally when the Kent variant, now known as Alpha, first burst onto the scene in Britain on our radar screens virologically in the autumn in the UK and then really manifesting itself by December and January of uh, of January of this year. And we saw that that appeared to be more transmissible and people were using numbers of anything up to 50% more transmissible, which was causing more cases. And then we get this new variant, the Delta agent, which is the Indian subtype 2 variant, as is also known. And that one appeared to be outstripping even the Kent strain and going even faster. And we think this one is about 60 or 70% more transmissible. And so many people are saying, well, how can it be more transmissible? What is it about it that makes it more transmissible? Well, we don't know for sure. But we do know that of the constellation of maybe 16, 17 genetic changes that this particular variant has, it certainly seems to make the virus grow more efficiently. So if you do measurements on people who have caught it, you can recover a lot more virus a lot more quickly in their nose than someone who's caught one of the more traditional, let's call it classical strains of coronavirus. So the virus efficiency in terms of infectivity and ability to grow and therefore spread and spread away from the the first person who got it, that's enhanced. And it's that increase in the amount of virus that an infected case is dispensing into the environment that that accounts for why it seems to spread more rapidly because you're dispensing into the air around you more infectious doses more often and therefore someone with whom you share time has to share proportionately less time to encounter what we dub an infectious dose and that's why you get more cases for each person who has already got the infection the so-called r number is higher well with that in mind chris um one question we've got here via email i understand some people are worried that if they get immune immunized now they might have reduced or even zero immunity when new strains develop over time so if there's another variant after delta um could they be reassured about the effect of any vaccination they're having now would be effective against a future strain as well well you can never send every medicine but here's the reassurance i can offer 
The vaccines that we're using were developed against, let's call it the classical strain of coronavirus, the one that burst onto the scene in 2020. And so we're a couple of variants downstream of that now. And the vaccines that we're using in the UK, where we have the eye-watering 20, 30, sometimes 40,000 cases per day, cases, admittedly, they are 95% effective in those contexts. So in other words, of the people who are catching the infection, despite being vaccinated, 95% of the time those people are doing just fine. They're not becoming severely unwell. So the vaccines are really, really effective at preventing severe disease. What they can't be guaranteed to do is to prevent infection. And people may say, well, that's a bit confusing. How can you catch something if you're immune to it? Well, mm. yes, it's, it's, a, it's a, a problem of, of definitions and semantics. Severe disease well, is a different thing to catching the infection. And we now have some, some more clarity on this because I spoke to um, a number of researchers about this. Uh, some papers have been published in recent weeks, actually, showing that you need far lower levels of antibody washing around in your bloodstream to stop you getting severe infection in your lungs compared to just getting infection in your nose and throat. So what we think is happening is people are now, thanks to the vaccines, getting a proportionate level of antibody. Those antibodies react sufficiently well, even despite the variants, to the variants that are circulating, to prevent them progressing and becoming a severe infection that would damage the lungs and render someone hospitalised. But about two-thirds of the time, they still get an infection. And as a result of that, they can spread the infection because there's quite high levels of virus there. And as we learned from a Public Health England study this week, the amount of virus in an infected person despite vaccination is still quite high and high enough to transmit. Mm. So the antibodies in the bloodstream are the key, key there. Yes, but the, the thing I would say is my instinct, and we don't know for sure, but my instinct and my interpretation of all of these findings is that when you are exposed to these vaccines, you make what we call immune memory antibodies are y-shaped molecules that wash around in the bloodstream and they're sticky where the fingers are if you held your arms up above your head like a letter y where your fingers are those are the sticky bits of the antibody they bind onto things that shouldn't be in the bloodstream and stop them working they clog up the works but they're made by populations of so-called lymphocytes white blood cells that are memory cells they have the recipe genetically programmed into them for making that particular class or group of antibodies and those memory cells are very long-lived some of them last a lifetime so therefore even if your levels of antibody do tail off with time you still have that underlying underpinning immune memory and if the virus has not changed too much in the meantime then you can recruit out of your memory the recipe for making those antibodies if you encounter the infectious threat for real and you get a really big surge in antibody production as well as other white blood cells called t-cells that can help to fight off virally infected cells and and therefore you do mount quite an agile immune response even if your antibody levels have dwindled and diminished in the meantime so i think this is every reason to be reassured that and we're having this kind of discussion at the moment here in the uk because we're going towards winter. In winter, all kinds of infectious diseases become a lot more common. COVID will be no exception. And so the government are really debating, do we need to boost everybody? Some countries are resorting to boosters. The Americans have decided that they're going to offer booster doses across the population comprehensively. That was originally going to be the plan in the UK for anyone over the age of 50. We're hearing different noises now where people are making sort of noises about perhaps targeting strategically certain groups in the population of say a certain age or a particular uh, 
clinical group who are vulnerable for various reasons. So I don't think anyone knows for sure yet how they're going to go about this or what they're going to do. But but we do think a booster programs on the cards, but just not necessary perhaps for everybody. Well, a couple of questions about masks here, uh, Chris. One is uh, someone saying, I can't understand why it's not mandatory for us in New Zealand to wear masks outside when walking and exercising, although some people are doing that. Um, so we do the social distancing, but surely droplets can remain in the air. So maybe that is a smart thing to do. Uh, and the second question is saying even double masking has been suggested. Um, is, if that's a good thing, if Delta is indeed more transmissible. Well, first of all, the outside question Experts universally don't agree about masks. That's never been more contentious. But what they absolutely do agree on is that outside is much better than inside when it comes to the transmission of virus infections. And not just coronavirus, but all virus infections that are of the respiratory type. And the reason is a simple one, that when you're outside, the outside conditions are much less hospitable to the virus than inside the air dilution effect is huge. When you're outside, the amount of virus that you're dispensing into the environment, any distance from you rapidly dwindles. And it's much harder to encounter an infectious dose outside than inside. And face coverings are all about trying to cut down your ability to dispense infectious particles into the air around you. Unless you're in really, really close-packed circumstances and surroundings, it's very hard for you to to shed enough virus into the environment that you're going to make a substantial difference to people's risk compared to the other risks that exist in their life. Inside well, is Chris, a different that matter. That plays into another question that we've got. If I could just interrupt you there, because someone's asking, with, we're talking about the effect of the vaccine and the antibody. Do, does the vaccine actually have the effect of reducing the number of transmissible particles that are shed by an infected person? Well, the intuitively, you'd think, well, well, it should do, shouldn't it? But actually, it looks like the levels of virus in the nose of a person who is infected with Delta if they get infected despite vaccination, still remain high and certainly high enough to transmit the infection. So probably uh, there are going to be people who are infected despite being vaccinated who are going to have as high levels of infectivity as people who are unvaccinated. Uh, That was a study from Public Health England, I think, in the last week or so. They're actually showing that that that's the case. Um, But when it comes to outside, it doesn't matter how infectious you are. If you're sufficiently far from other people and there's that dilution effect with, with air that's humid, and humid air causes the virus droplets and the the droplets with virus in them to fall out of the air, fall to the ground and get trodden underfoot pretty promptly. The heat also deactivates the virus. If a nice sunny weather, that will help to deactivate virus. And just the drying effect of of being outside the body is accelerated outside. There's possibly, people talk about possibly some effect of UV as well, but um, it's arguable whether there's enough UV to deactivate viruses in in a clinically relevant rate, at a clinically relevant rate. But certainly outside is much safer than inside. And therefore, it's, it's a hard argument and a hard justification to make for wearing face coverings outside. Inside, they do cut down the ability of droplets to leave the body. But the evidence we have is the majority of people don't actually use face coverings effectively. In hospitals, they certainly do when Mm. they're properly fit, tested and combined with other PPE measures like face coverings and aprons, gloves, a hand washing regime, etc. That is very effective. It does protect healthcare workers from infectious cases. But most people are some some are very diligent some are very good but most people actually are combining different measures in different ways that don't actually work very well and so we're we're not actually seeing very good use and uptake of of what could be a, a good defense if used really really effectively so it probably helps a bit indoors at least a bit 
Well, Chris, a couple of questions about water. Here in New Zealand, we do uh, wastewater testing, and the hope is that we might get an early warning if something's picked up in wastewater that there might be a spread or infection or something that the virus is being shed. But in this outbreak we've had recently, that wasn't the case. We didn't get any early warning. So uh, Mark in Christchurch asks, how certain could we be uh, that COVID isn't in a location if wastewater testing in and around that location doesn't find any? And the second question if it's detectable in sewage or wastewater, does that mean the virus is actually transmittable by drinking water as well, If I guess if there's any kind of cross-contamination? Uh, lots of countries have been looking at this because it could offer a, a useful screening measure. It could u- offer a, a measure of a disease burden as well. You look at how much of the particular genetic signal you're going for is present in the wastewater, you relate that to the population that that wastewater's come from and you can watch the levels going up and down. It might give you some kind of insights into how many people are infected and whether the outbreak is growing or shrinking. But like all these things, there's a limit of detection and these are super sensitive techniques but they are not perfect and if you have got something present at really, really low levels it's quite easy to fall below the limit of detection of your test and therefore you will not register a positive despite the fact there could be a low level of of something circulating. So at the moment we don't know exactly what the threshold of uh, detection is going to be. It's going to come down to how good the test is, it's going to come down to how frequently you you sample, so how often you're taking samples, how big those samples are as a proportion of the amount of water that's being treated. So it is potentially very useful but uh, it's it's not necessarily going to pick up one case in five million, which is what it would take in New Zealand's population to immediately just pinpoint a case and, and leap on it straight away. But it's a useful, it's another tool. In terms of whether or not water is a threat, well, I would say the answer for drinking water is going to be almost certainly not. And the reason I'm saying that is drinking water is treated and if it's come out of a borehole it won't be treated but it will have come out of a borehole that's uncontaminated as a source and very unlikely to carry any coronaviruses and drinking water that's come from a water supply as in down a mains water supply will have been treated filtered and chlorinated or at least exposed to some kind of ionizing treatment such as with ultraviolet which would render harmless any coronavirus in there so drinking water i think is a very low grade threat but One thing that we have seen is the possibility of this thing spreading through what goes down the lavatory in the first place. The fact that it's being detected by genetic signal at the sewage works tells you that the virus doesn't just leave the body upwards, it can leave the body downwards as well. And there is evidence that the virus particles can exist in the intestines and therefore it's possible that what we put down the loo could carry some viable virus with it. And there was one study reported from Australia where they think they've got evidence of people in adjacent toilet cubicles spreading the infection between them. Um, They had no other contact other than sharing air that was potentially polluted by what was going down the loo. So that may be one more minor route of transmission. The more major route of transmission is, is of course, the respiratory route with us coughing and, and breathing it out on each other. Yes, indeed. And we had uh, a case of that in a hotel where it was uh, transmitted between two rooms across a corridor just by the movement of air uh, between two people who were otherwise isolated. So that was a wake-up call for us on just how transmissible it is. But a question here, Chris, about the incubation period for the Delta variant. Is is it any different from what we kind of described earlier as classic coronavirus? It doesn't appear to be. It's about five days. The average is five days and it can be as long as two weeks. And the shortest we've documented is about a day. 
And for the infectious period, do, do infected patients with Delta stop being infectious at around about the same time? We believe so. The trajectory of infection is the same. I mean, the virus is not dramatically different. It's got a, it's got a, a constellation of, of of changes in the genetic code, which broadly affect not so much the machinery of how the virus works, but how it looks. So it's effectively a chemical or biochemical facelift that this virus has had. It's kind of the Joan Rivers of the virus world, if you like. <laughs> and and this means it's it's still Joan Rivers underneath, but it just looks subtly different than the younger Joan Rivers, and that difference in appearance is. What what gives it the upper hand when it comes to slipping past our immune system. And there are some other slight changes in terms of perhaps its efficiency of gaining access to our cells and therefore gaining access more quickly and growing a bit faster. But but pretty much biochemically, the trajectory of the way it interacts with the immune system gets neutralised and you recover. That remains broadly the same as far as we can tell. And a question here about testing for it. Is, uh, is the efficiency and the efficacy of the tests uh, any different for uh, detecting delta and there's still the uh, pressure on to get saliva testing which we don't really have yet uh, and some people would certainly like it um would that help the the testing that we're doing falls into two categories lateral flow testing and lateral flow tests are looking for the antigens they are looking for specific bits of the virus as it grows it, it produces in the infected cells various building blocks a bit like bricks that you use to build a house but those building blocks accumulate in infected cells and when you take a nose and throat swab you can scrape off some cells burst them open with the diluent that's in the test and those antigens are then detected by antibodies program to detect them the rate of production of those antigens peaks as the person is about to become symptomatic, but they peak in line with their infectivity. So that means the lateral flow tests tend to be most sensitive when a person is most infectious, but their overall sensitivity might be about 50 to 60%. So you're still going to miss up to half of cases if you use that sort of test. The other, what's regarded as gold standard test, is the PCR test, where we're using the same nose and throat swab, but instead of going for bits of the virus, the bricks that the virus is um, built from, you're going from the genetic blueprint that tells infected cells how to make those bricks. And this system is far more sensitive and can pick up far more cases far more quickly and earlier in infection, but also later in infection because there'll be more residue of that left behind that could could be picked up. And this throws in a new spanner into the works because we are increasingly seeing people who, for instance, want to travel. And in order to travel, you have to have a negative PCR test and they turn up at the airport for their PCR test and it's positive because they had coronavirus a couple of weeks ago. They're now better. They're now mm. immune. They're now recovered. They're not infectious, but they're testing positive because of the residuum of having had that infection. And one thing briefly, Chris, uh, children, uh, we've been told now that uh, our vaccination program is paused a bit by the current lockdown that we've had, but it's going to resume shortly. And uh, people have been told they can take their, their children because the, the policy now is to expand um, the vaccine availability to younger people. Uh, do you regard that as a good step? Is it important? And, you know, is there anything parents need to bear in mind if they're taking their kids with them, um, as is suggested when they get their vaccines? The UK is increasingly looking like an outlier on this front because uh, we made the decision a while back that we were not going to routinely offer the vaccine to 
people between the age of 12 and 16. In fact, it was 12 and 17. And then in the last week, our Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation has actually rolled out a programme for 16 and 17-year-olds, but not yet anything for anybody younger. Many other countries are going down that path. And the rationale behind going down that path is that children's education has been so severely impacted by the coronavirus. And although children are not severely at risk from catching coronavirus they can nevertheless catch it they can amplify and pass it on they can pass it on to other family members and there will among their number be those who are vulnerable so we will see some who get severely unwell but we may also see some who develop post-viral syndromes like long covid so i've spoken to a number of scientists now who agree that they think it's rather strange that the uk is uh, taking this stance and they do anticipate that perhaps that that stance will soften in future in future weeks to months perhaps uh, expanding the the vaccine offer to those between the ages of of 12 and 16 to uh, really line up with what the rest of the world is seeking to do and I think it's a good idea. Questions still pouring in from our listeners I'm afraid we couldn't get to them all but thanks so much uh, Dr Chris Smith for answering so many of them we do look forward to having you back. It's Dr Chris Smith, consultant, clinical virologist at Cambridge University. Uh, On Twitter he is Naked Scientist, all one word and if you're wondering that's the name of his podcast.